Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is... Ancient Office Hours, at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode featuring Liam D. Jensen, a historical archivist who specializes in historical paper collections and the creator of the Lego classicist family. Our team decided to release this conversation as a special release in honor of International Lego Classicism Day 2022, which is actually celebrated every year on February 20th. Liam and I chit-chatted all about his path to becoming a historical archivist, why he chose Lego as his medium for engaging with the classical world, his selection process for joining the Lego classicist family, and dealing with imposter syndrome as the Elsie family grew. We did manage to spiral into some fun mini-tangents because we're both ADD and extremely excitable humans, but I did try my best to keep us on track. I hope you all enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Have you heard uh, how many uh, roadies does it take to change a light bulb? Oh, no, I have not. Oh, okay. One, two, 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 one, two. (laughs) (laughs) Great to have you here all the way from Australia. I am so excited for this to finally happen. Finally, was it been six months of working up to this? (laughs) Six months of like working together and and talking and whatever. And then (laughs) I know a ton about you by now, but for my wonderful listeners who are tuning in today, can you tell us a little about yourself? Like, what is it that you do and you know, how does that intertwine with classics in the ancient world? And I know that's a big question, but the floor is yours. It's a huge question because it's a complex question because I am both paradoxically completely involved in the ancient world and yet completely not all at the same time because career-wise at this point in my life, I am just an archivist. And I say just with inverted commas because I think archivists, librarians, and curators of museums and art galleries are probably the most unappreciated because they, I think more often than not, they're seen as just the tech team behind the thought. Whereas really they're the gatekeepers to everything or the conversation starters to the thought as well, because let's use, let's start, we'll go backwards, like look at a curator who puts an exhibition together. Yes, there's an academic behind the thought who probably is usually credited as the main idea behind it, but the nuance that's needed to 
take that high-level academic thought to the general audience. That is an extreme ability that is required for, an, uh, for a curator to do, because to get that balance, like we've all been to exhibitions that blow your mind. And then we've been to exhibitions where you just go, meh, even though the material itself is amazing. So that conversation that has to be said through display is such a nuance. And then going deeper into that, then we've got librarians who are the gatekeepers to information. And then before that, we've got archivists who are the gatekeepers to physically important artifacts. And I go in that direction too, because you've got the librarians who've got the information, but you've got the archivists and the conservators who literally touch these things. And that is like the day that I actually touched something from the 1400s, I had to take a breath for a second because I went, okay, if I actually rip this because it's a piece of paper from the 1400s, I went, okay, I have to scan this. And if I rip that, there's no turning back now. It was a groundbreaking moment because before that, that was the first time I actually held anything of, and this is through my current work for, through the um, independent scholar Lynette Jensen. But before that, I was dealing with more modern materials. So there's a little bit more meh-ness to that. It's like, yeah, they're still precious. They're from the 20s, who cares? <laughs> but and that's the attitude I have now when I've held things from the 1400s, 1500s, and a bunch of collections that from the 1600s and 1800s as well. They're, they're all different time periods, but they're all as important. But what I mean is my connection to the ancient world is both interconnected and disconnected all at the same time through my work in that way. I don't know if that answered this question in that way, but yeah. It's my connection to the, let's stick to the ancient world. Um, that's a deeper question again, because I do have an internal love for the ancient world, particularly the, I don't even want to use the word classical ancient world because that's a modern, even that's a modern concept. What I mean is the true ancient world, which is non-connected to the Anglo-Saxon invention of the word classics and the classical studies, because that's something I got invented somewhere around about 1700s, 1800s. And that's why I decided to not participate. Also, I will put that as a pinpoint here. That's why I decided not to participate in the conversation of the classics and making it more accessible because I kind of think that the classicists can have the classics. I love the ancient world and that is much more complex, much more human and much more impossible to define. And that love dates back much, much beyond before I was even thinking about it, because as a six-year-old child, literally on my sixth birthday, I arrived in Athens, like literally on the day. My sixth birthday was in Athens eating Greek chocolate cake and then going to visit the Parthenon. That's my birthday. And when you're six years old, you're not really paying attention to that because it's just being absorbed. And in fact, there's a photograph of me standing where you can get that really classical image of the Parthenon behind you. And because it's near the edge of a cliff, obviously, I think my mother tells me that they said to me, I'll oh, be careful, you're close to the edge. So of course, I pretend as though I'm about to fall down. There's a photograph of me, a six-year-old, pretending to keep my balance. But the fact that you see this child, now that I look at these photographs, you see the six-year-old child not thinking, just absorbing, playing engaging it makes me realize how much it set a mindset in me and we were there for i think six months and with the plan of being there indefinitely so we traveled around greece we lived in naxos for a time as well and it all seemed like nothingness at the time but it's only when i got into the point of my actual ancient history or history career that i realized that it was always with me and i guess that is my true connection to the ancient world and i like to try to keep it that way i don't i actually do purposely especially because of my dyslexia as well i actually purposely try to not know too much written data i prefer to feel it over know it and through the feeling it i know it 
if that makes sense. But then again, that comes into, and this is where we're probably going to have to start to the beginning of my career, because that is foremost where our start is, and that's an artistic methodology, because I really am, before anything else, an artist first, because I am four-generation artists, commercial artists, technically. My mother, before that, my grandparents were both a commercial artist. My grandmother, Woolcott Jensen, was a calligrapher and watercolorist and a fairly well-known watercolorist in Sydney as well. My grandfather was a silk screen printer, or what's known as screen printing these days, but it'd be a cold, dark day in Tartarus before I call it anything else, but silk screen printing. And he had his own company. So my early childhood of visiting my grandparents was well halfway through doing jobs at the time and we're taking up the dinner table when we'd have to eat dinner on our laps instead because that's just what you do and my mother has very similar stories of that as well and then my great-grandfather was was a signed writer in Sydney and I've actually got one of his signs in the family as well of a, a royal post sign that he did in his own hand so it's like it's amazing little piece that you can actually go yeah that's right people actually have to touch these and do these this is not some printer that prints it out <laughs> so My background is very much a creative background. So that was the beginning of me because when I was starting to get to the age of kind of sort of thinking where I wanted to go in my life, my first thoughts were in graphic design. And particularly as before I can even remember, I've always had a fascination in film and television. It's just been a strong background in me. I think partially because of my artist background and also my parents and my grandparents were interested in film as well as an art form particularly my grandmother was a huge fan of Disney because particularly because the backdrops were done in watercolors as well so that Mm -hmm. is actually quite an amazing thing I think Lilo and Stitch was the most recent one where they went back to watercolors in the background that was actually quite interesting that's why it's got such a soft beautifulness to it anyway and it's through that want of getting into the film industry that I started thinking that I didn't think of myself as a filmmaker yet this is of course where we're going next but I was thinking costume design set design graphic art design in the backgrounds of things because you'd you'd be surprised how much graphic artists are hired in the film industry because you need posters and things and stuff in the background all the time and it's through that my parents started getting me into production short courses here and there and eventually I got into a short filmmaking course because it was actually my mother who decided oh if you want to get into film you need to know how film works so do this film course first so then you actually understand the construct and it's through that I fell in love with filmmaking so then all of a sudden I was a filmmaker and this was back when I was like 16 when I did that course and I was 18 by the time I made my first film. This is where I was really fortunate in the physicality of the world I was living in at the time, because at this point, my family was living in South Australia in the city of Adelaide. And Adelaide at this time, and still is, is one of the foremost arts communities in Australia. Like they are famous for their um, Fringe Film Festival. Like the Fringe Film Festival alone is actually the second most successful Fringe Festival after End of Edinburgh. It's like it's that high up. I'm not sure if they've still got that mantle, but it was back then at least. So the arts community, it is their lifeblood and everything. And also it's a relatively small city, so it's really easy to get around. So I pretty much grew up amongst the arts end of the city, going to courses and eventually going to film school and getting to know the really um, high, uh, there was a really good art house cinema there that was the place that actually also had those courses that I went to. And I got caught under the wing of the guy who was the production, head of the production side of things there. So I was always able to get, like I was hiring, this is when Mac computers were pretty basic at the time, before we could just edit stuff on your computer all the time. So you literally had to edit VHS to VHS. And the only way you could do that 
was by either having tens of thousands of dollars by yourself or going to a place that you could hire the suite from. So I was doing that at 16, 17. But I'm going to fast track now. So that was my really early background. I continued that on for many years, thinking that I was going to be a filmmaker. I went to film school in Adelaide as well, to AC Arts, which was one of the most high-end film schools in Australia, not the most one, because of course that's afters, but that's, <laughs> that's another level. I was still in Adelaide at the time. But it's this that still in the background, I was interested in history. Because I can even remember back in film school, I remember someone as a film project, because we had to do so many film projects week to week to week to week. And one person wanted to do this thing on bikinis. And I said, and she wanted to do this really quick piece on the history of bikinis. And I just said off the hand, so, you know, they date back to ancient Roman times. She went, what? <laughs> so I had to go back home, pick up my ancient history book that my parents just happened to have lying around. They had an actual image of women wearing bikinis, just doing, you know, swimming. It's that really famous one where they're just, you know, swimming, playing ball, you know, doing exercises. Nothing. It's not even, I, I hate the way they even, some people even said, oh, so it's a little bit titillating. No, get out of here, you dirty minded person. No, it's just people doing exercise and you wear a bikini, just like, you know, normal stuff. And so I showed her that picture. She said, so that's real, real. I said, yeah, bikinis, they're just logical. Yeah, I was a piece of cloth to cover the private parts. It's logical. <laughs> We've been humans for since the dawn of time. Anyway, so even back then, I was interested in not just history, but ancient history. And it's only more recently down the track that I realized how deep this goes. So then I'll fast track to coming and moving back home to Sydney, because I am actually a Sydney sider at heart and born in Sydney. We were living in South Australia for uh, 14 years, I think it was. We came back to Sydney, started, uh, I was in my early 20s. And got involved with the Sydney Film Festival and also got involved with the Powerhouse Museum here in Sydney, which is the museum it is important. I mentioned the Powerhouse because even though it's a modern museum of mostly modern art and modern design in both artistic clothes, furniture, that sort of design, but also in technology, because it's a very much both technological based museum as well, because it was originally a part of the tech at Sydney as well in its origins. But this is the museum that made me fall in love with museums as a small child. When they opened up this museum, postmodernist, beautiful museum that it was when they built it, even though it dates back further than that, with such interactive, they built it back in the late 80s and early 90s, the interactions that they designed for children were amazing. Little playgrounds that children played with, but in amongst that you engage in history. They've got rid of them now. Luckily, I actually managed to capture some of the pieces of them. So I've got it physically in my own life now. But this museum was the heart of my heart, the deepest love of my loves if, as far as museums go just because it was interconnected to my childhood so going back to that museum was really important I became a volunteer just a normal volunteer and volunteers were just basically glorified tour guides but very quickly the head of the volunteers stated a project they were working on which was they wanting to do training video to give the volunteers basic information they didn't have to read they could just watch a video but unfortunately they, they filmed it but the budget ran out and they couldn't edit it and I just kind of went does it help that I'm a, actually a professional filmmaker and um, instead of me doing tours, could I do that? And they went, you happy to do that? I said, yep. <laughs> so I actually skipped the whole doing tours stuff and went straight into just doing the videos for them. Um, one of the videos actually officially went up on their website for over seven years on one of their most amazing pieces of the Bolton and Watt steam engine, which is still working. They still steam it up. This machine is technically older than the Australian colonies. And it's still chugging away. 
most beautiful thing. If you think of machines as being mechanical and unhuman, if you see this, but your heart will melt because it looks like it's breathing. It's just with every puff. And it's just the most organic machine you've ever seen in your entire life. It's a beautiful piece. But I made a video for that, which was really originally just a training video. And then they put it up on their website for seven years. So this was my introduction into actually being professionally helping out museums. And it was around that, at this point, I was also working as an usher at the State Theatre in Sydney. Now, the State Theatre is actually an ex-cinema palace. It's one of the few cinema palaces left, not just in Australia, but also in the world. There are very few cinema palaces of the era of the 20s and 30s left in the world because they, during the 70s and 80s, were considered ugly as all hell. And they are, actually ugly as all hell, but they've got a place because beauty is within the meaning, not within the visual. And I was working there as an usher. It's mostly for live theatre events these days. And I was having a chat to one of my managers at the time because it was during the Sydney, because the Sydney Film Festival was mostly at the theatre as well. It's how I got the job there because I was a volunteer first and then I became an usher. And I was having a chat to my manager in a lunch break one day during the Sydney Film Festival and it was the bar manager who's actually in charge of the tours, the historical tours at the, uh, at the theatre, who overheard me talking about my volunteer work at the Powerhouse Museum. And he turns around and goes, oh, do you do history stuff? And I go, I do this volunteer work at the Powerhouse Museum. Yes. So, oh, you should go for the job upstairs. They're looking for historical archives for the main, because the actual head office of the entire, not just the State Theatre, but the entire company, which owns and runs one of Australia's oldest cinema chains. And they were getting ready for their 100th anniversary and they were putting a historical book together and they need an archivist to help to put all the images for the book together. So I went for the job and explained my position. And next thing I knew, I was their first official historical archivist in the history of the company, as one does. And of course, at this point, was I trained as an archivist? Nope. Did I tell them I was? Nope. <laughs> Did I tell them all I was? Yep. And yet, for some reason, they forgot that in about five seconds flat because they started thinking I actually worked for the Powerhouse Museum. But who cares? I'll let, I let them have that beautiful illusion, even though I told them the truth. Uh, but I had to learn on the job. And luckily, a friend of the family actually worked at the Powerhouse Museum. So I spent nearly every single lunch break walking from the, <laughs> walking from the State Theatre head office down to the Powerhouse Museum because it was only a 15-minute walk and having lunch with him saying, okay, so I've got this stuff. What do I do? <laughs> what kind of materials do I need to use? Okay, what kind of boxes do I do? Okay, what, how do you archive this? And he would just tell me, oh, this is what we do here at the Powerhouse. And here, have this paperwork here. This is what I'm working on right now. And now here's a, an artifact sheet that you can fill in. And da, 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 da. So I learned, and he was in charge of transport and can tell you some amazing things about planes, trains, and automobiles that are quite, would just make you just go, yeah, I'm sold. And it's through this process, I went from just someone who calls himself an archivist to... I am an archivist because I have learned from the job. And also, I think the important thing is I always have in the back of my head, all I know is I know nothing. So I never assume I know everything. And it was a fascinating job too, because I remember my first day, it was one of the building staff has to come in, gives me the key, security cards, sign away my life or blah, blah, blah. And then after I sign everything, he just says, thank God you're here. We've needed you for ages. And so he became my biggest fan. And all of a sudden, nearly once a week, one of the building management would come into my office and say, we found this behind a wall. It looks like it's old. Do you want it? And I go, of course, at this point, because the archive at this point, because this is fascinating, the archive literally, their historical archive at this point was literally a four-drawer tin cabinet with a label stuck on it in handwriting, history. That's it.
that was the extent of their archive. Over the course of the next eight years, it turned into a mini museum because just because of stuff that I found, even though my job was just to find photographs to put their book together, it did turn into an archive because, and then particularly the building staff themselves, because they just kept coming to my office and say, I found this newspaper in a cavity underneath the wall somewhere. So, okay, I'll put that aside here, dust it off, put it into a drawer or something, something. But the best story I have about that was one day as one of the staff come in and say, I was just at the top of the building and there's this little tin shed up there and it's got some machines in it. They look old. You want to have a look? I go, oh, yeah. So they take me first up to the top floor, which is where all the CEOs of the company are. So in this really ornate looking wooden walled buildings trying to look like old school England of some kind. <laughs> that's where the CEOs were at the time. But that's not the true top of the building. They then had to take me into this little side room which had a ladder and I went through a hole in the roof and I had to climb this ladder up on top of the roof, which was literally the top of the roof. And yes, indeed, there was this little tin shed, corrugated iron, very classical Australian looking tin shed you'd see in the middle of nowhere in the country. And within there were these two machines and bits and pieces of the chandelier inside the um, theatre as well. And these machines were edifices. So dictating machines. And I had to research that to find it because they had wax cylinders and everything. And no, they're not recorded, unfortunately. But one of them had the label of one of the founding, not founding directors, but one of the well-known directors of the company back in the 50s, labeled on it. So I dictated that one to be, that must be the one that his secretary must have used. So we called that one the, the Ridge um, dictaphone. But there were two of them. And so it's like stories like that. It was just like, you just can't make that stuff up. Like at what point would have they, like they probably half knew that it was there at some point, but who are they going to tell? CEOs aren't going to care about some random old stuff on top of the roof. So it was the first time that the company itself was taking interest in their own age and history. And yes, the building was built in the 19, 1929. So the building had accumulated stuff in corners, decades. But it's through the work here, because primarily, as I just pointed out, the, uh, apart from these beautiful machines, most of the collection was paper, photographs, original blueprints, decay of all sorts of kinds, because they had been framed badly, and stuff like that. So I had to carefully pull them apart. Not just blueprints of the state theatre, but blueprints of, of cinemas and hotels, because they have a hotel chain as well, through mostly through the 70s and 80s of all these hotels they did and didn't build because they're all in the planning process. So some got built, some didn't. Replans of the state theatre, modernising it during the 80s, because the 80s, as I said, the 80s is when, in the 70s and 80s, when they considered cinema palaces ugly. So they kept trying to think of remodernising it. At one point, there were plans to turn it into a casino. And so all these different artefacts, then when it got to the point where I was no longer needed, it was at this point that Lynette Jensen, who, who is my mother, already working for the family company at the time, which is unrelated to history, but she had just recently got new medication to help her chronic illness. And she had this new energy in her life that she didn't have before because she was literally bedridden since I was a small child. And she is classically trained. And she was an ancient history teacher and English teacher back in the day. She wanted to give what she learned through philosophy and ancient history that kept her mentally sane through this entire process. So she wanted to give back now that she was well and had access to some money to do so. So she started collecting these antique, antique engravings specifically relating to the ancient world. It kind of coincided with me stop working for this. And she said, well, you already work for the family company. Do you want your next title to be also be historical archivist? I said, why 
why not? So since then, this is back in 2014, 2015, around about then. Since then, I've been dealing with these engravings. And this is where holding a piece of paper from the 1400s happened. That was one of the first things I had to handle. So after dealing with stuff from the 1920s and 30s and 50s, which was already precious enough to me at the time, all of a sudden was a whole new concept of, yeah, this thing existed before my family name even existed. And that really changes your brain to handle it. It's not just study it, it's not just to think about it, but to handle it, which I guess really goes back to my point of, I really do like to try to be a champion to the curators, the um, librarians and the archivists and the um, conservators, because it doesn't sound like that should be a difference, but there is a difference to suddenly handling it and knowing it, because there is knowing the data and handling the data. And you don't need to know the data to know that you're holding something that's got power to it. Anyway, that's a long way of answering the question. <laughs> no, but it's it's a quite fascinating story because I think most people would not have, well, one, families that are creative that go way, 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 way back. I mean, most no, that is unusual. Know, yes, certainly our first or second generation. And then that kind of stops. I know maybe one person is like a third generation. Yeah. It creative. used to be more common back in the day because that, that's a, a that we can talk about that because I remember Kara Cooney mentioning something similar to that. And that is a much more old school way of life once you're in the career you stay in the career for generations at a time like four generations 100 years ago would be saying nothing in fact there'll be eight generations saying to me oh darling you know nothing <laughs> right so i mean yeah. i think it's it's really interesting to hear how one either leverages that background yeah. and gets place but i think it still ties in fantastically well to the point that for most people who i've spoken to or that i've met yeah, they had, didn't really have anything handed to them. They still had to go out and find opportunity and still had to sort of make something of it. And so now that you have all of this wonderful experience and, and you're finding new things and you have this deeply ingrained love for the ancient world, specifically mm. the what we would think of the Greco, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the Greco-Roman Mediterranean. Some people may be aware of your work as the Lego classicist, but mm. what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the non-traditional route and not just say, why did you start it? Or one of those random, random questions. I'm gonna say, why Legos though? Because you have a lot of different mediums, a lot of different art things that you could go with. I mm. mean, I personally, as a child, I love those like plastic mythological characters and the, I've played around with some of the toy plastic knights and other- Oh yeah, those figurine stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the figurines. And so, you know, if I was kind of tasked with doing a fun project, who knows, maybe I would have picked up figurines. So. Mm. What is it about Legos, though, that really, right. you know, out of all these art things that you could have picked? First off, I'm going to start with unusually as a dyslexic person. I hate people who correct my pronunciation of things, but I'm going to first say it's Lego, not Legos. There is no plural because it's a company name. A Lego brick, you can say bricks. A Lego piece, you can say pieces. A Lego set, you can say sets. But Lego itself, unless there's physically two companies standing side by side, <laughs> there's no Legos. <laughs> but no, that's a really good question because, yes, playing with Lego, or should I say using Lego as an art form, is not my first medium. As I just said, I had. I was a filmmaker. I come from an arts background. I know how to draw, basically, not hugely. I, I have gone to live class as well. It was one of, actually, it was a really good course to go to. I'm also really thankful when I did do, because every time I tell people, they say, uh, did you get to look at a naked woman? No, it was a guy. So shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so shut up. It's not about the naked body. It's about the naked form and what it teaches you, because the naked form is oh so hard to draw. 
like the human body is really hard to, like a hand, a naked hand is really hard to draw. It's easier to draw it with a glove. Absolutely. Why so, do you think yeah. I don't draw humans? That's why I draw sharks relatively easier to draw. <laughs> so yeah, it, I've done a lot of training in all different forms of art form across my life. And it is a good question. Why Lego? Because it's, of course, interconnected to my generation and our generation, your generation, because we, uh, my mother pointed, Lynette Jensen once put it out when she did her talk on this subject matter as well. We are all children of Lego because Lego dates back when we're talking about the plastic brick Lego because Lego goes back before the plastic brick too and a lot of people don't realize that it was wooden toys and things like that and it goes back deeper than that they were originally a furniture factory before that as well so but when we're talking about what we talk about with Lego the plastic bricks in particular and of course from the 70s onwards the beautiful gorgeous little figures and they're so cute and they're so perfect and they're so abstract and I could go on I will talk about that in a second because they are perfection in abstract art even before we get to the more modern ones, let's talk about the original ones. But um, we are all children of Lego. And even my mother is a child of Lego because Lego was around at that point too. So was, we're actually at a point in history where there are very few people old enough to exist before Lego. They are around, but it's, we're about 10 seconds away from it being, there's no such thing as a person that hasn't br been brought up with at least a little bit of Lego or exposed to it in some way or another, whether it's through kindergarten or school or something like that, even if their parents couldn't afford it. Lego is such a universally beautiful artistic toy. And this does lead into my grandmother more than anything else, because I do actually still own my very first Lego set. But also, it was a hard concept to play with, because filmmaking and academia are not compatible. They are oil to water. It's just impossible to mix the two. And I was playing with where they did match. And there are some matching points, but it was basically an unwinning combination. So it's why I gave up on that as well. I should actually say there wasn't the only reason why I gave up on, I didn't give up. I had to I say that I retired from filmmaking and went into as an archivist, not just because of the timing at the time for that reason, again, the connection at Greater Union, but it was also because I have got an underlying chronic illness that is affected by stress. Now, filmmaking is one of the most stress-ridden careers. To be a filmmaker, particularly to be a producing filmmaker, you have to concentrate from beginning, middle to end on so, juggling so many different people and ideas and things that can go wrong like that. And you always have to have in your head to have a plan, not just a plan B, not just a plan C, but a plan D as well, just in case all the first two <laughs> drop out as well. So completely stressful. It's a beautiful art form. I love it. I find it fascinating, but it's stressful and it, it affected my health. But that also coincided with my archiving as well. So that's a part of the story of how I got into archiving. But art form is Lego. Let's get to the point of that. So many things. It took me by surprise. Like I didn't think it was going to get to art. It started off as a, just a nice present to a friend of the family who worked, uh, who was a classicist here in Australia. And he was a friend of the family and I just saw these parts and looked like him and I gave it to him. Went on Facebook, went viral within the context of viral at the time. Not nowhere near what we're talking about, real viral, but viral within the group that it was shared amongst. Even then, um, what I am doing right now is complete. I've, uh, I've completely had to change the rules from the beginning as well to the point of construct these like art. I do take on the artistic method of trying to get the nuance of the person into the portrait within the restrictions of these beautiful, simple little pieces. But to 
understand the art, it does go back to my childhood again, because it is interconnected to real children of Lego. But more than that, it was really mostly my grandmother who encouraged the Lego more than even my parents, mostly because that's the best thing about grandparents is they spoil, you get to spoil the grandkid. The parents can't spoil the, grand, the child, the grandparents spoil the child. So I've got very deep memories of so many times. And my, there was one time during the late 80s, early 90s, there was these Lego sets. I was always interested in the history related Lego sets like the castles and the stuff like that found it fascinating it was my introduction that really was my early introduction to history in many ways but it was in particular they did what was officially licensed as the forest men but it was Robin Hood and these beautiful little green figurines and green was my favorite color at the time too and but more importantly, my grandmother in particular was encouraging me because one, she was a creative and she could see that this was a creative toy, a creative tool, not even a toy. It's a creative tool because it's so simple, but within the simplicity, you can create the world. But on top of that too, she too was a fan of Robin Hood. So with this, I remember this one day she was around, she and my grandfather were around and I was getting close to my birthday and she was politely asking, what would you like for your birthday? And I bring out the Lego catalog and say, well, I'd actually like this. But it's beyond just a grandparent just saying it in a polite way and getting whatever the grandkid wants because the next thing she is, she brings out a little pad and she looks at the catalogue. And this is the first time I realised that in the catalogue there's these little serial numbers because I never noticed this before and she was actually writing down the serial number to make sure she got the right one. And the look on her wasn't a grandparent patronising in a beautiful way. She was literally taking this as an artistic form of, I wanted to engage with the story of Robin Hood. And like I said, she was a fan of Robin Hood too. And my mother's a fan of Robin Hood. It goes generationally for me with Robin Hood. Robin Hood was actually one of my first interests of finding out truth versus legend versus history. Because of course, Robin Hood doesn't exist. But it's a beautiful story. And it's a beautiful introduction to finding out what is legend and what is truth. And both are beautiful and both are important. So that's interconnected to me too. But, it's also, but it is because of the encouragement of my particularly my grandmother, because she encouraged the creative use of Lego as well, because we weren't, we were def, just like the Lego film does, where we've got Emmett who follows the instructions and we've got the master builders and the entire, I, I hate the way that people have misunderstood that film. There's so many people have said, oh, but you know, it's all about the sets, right? I said, did you not watch that film? It's about the creativity. <laughs> it's like Lego, is, like, don't get me wrong. First thing I do when I was a child, got the set, bring the instructions out, you put it together because all of a sudden you'd actually learn, oh, I've never known that method before. I'm going to remember that. And as soon as you've had fun with that model, you pull it apart, put it in amongst the rest of your Lego and build something new. And that is exactly what I do with these figures. So to get to the real point here, that is exactly what I do with these figures. As much as I um, do design, custom design the torsos, I have actually exclusively decided to, from this point on, from the fifth anniversary, that I'm now exclusively designing the torsos as my actual drawn designs. Partially because I'm running out of options in Lego, <laughs> but also partially because I was starting to feel that they weren't getting the nuance. Like if I may use your figure as an example, it was quite clear there were no, like your blazer and the particular lilac, lilac uh, shirt. There was not, I mean, I could have chosen several other pieces as well, but also the other thing that really makes it difficult as well is Lego's going more and more down skin tones over the Lego yellow which I'm at cross swords with because I understand why they're doing it, dislike the way that they're in the process of trying to be more open. They are also taking the imagination of what the universal imagination away, because the real point of the reason why they chose yellow was at that point in the mid seventies, when the first Lego figure came out, they were down to mostly primary colors, green for base plates, because like grass and trees and black and white because they were keeping the colors down to really simple 
basics. That's what you had to work with at that time. And this lasted up until about the early 80s as well. So if you're going to make an abstract human block figure, what colour matches skin tone the best? Well, yellow. It just looks, it's, 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 it's universal. No one's actually yellow, but it means it can be universally skin tone. Like, it's like The Simpsons their use of yellow and that as well it's just a unit it's not anglo and i, I dislike the um, and i can talk about maybe i'll talk about that in a minute too because the way that some people have looked at my lego figures and say oh here's another anglo-saxon and so you just talked about someone who was actually very much not anglo-saxon just because i put them in lego yellow doesn't mean they're anglo-saxon <laughs> this understanding of thinking that rep yet that lego yellow represents white anglo-saxon so no it's to represent a universal skin tone as in, we are all human, we've all got different colours, like I'm not yellow or even indeed white. It's, it's, it's impossible to really say what we are because that's a stupid thing to assume. And I do understand the, under, the underlining prejudice that goes into it, so that's why it becomes complex and I don't argue against it too much as well. But I do like to try to stick to the yellow, and that is why I do like to try the classic Lego yellow where it is relevant. Uh, well, relevant, applicable. Yes, of course, even at the very beginning, I put in rules of if and when someone has got such a dark skin tone that yellow looks ridiculous. For instance, um, I'll use the example of um, uh, inducting Barack Obama in last year. Of course, I'm not going to make him Lego yellow. That's ridiculous. But I made sure I had a rule of only sticking to three skin tones, if we want to call them that. Anyone within the construct of light tones and that can get pretty dark before we get to, <laughs> before we start saying it's dark because where do we draw the line in the olden days they used to say that greeks weren't white which i would make any greek lego yellow because i know they're still in the lighter tones i mean i know you some in previous cultures and previous time periods of anglo-saxon culture we would say that they weren't white which is another interesting thing that we keep changing our minds but as soon as we get to actual mid-tones and chocolate tones and that's why I decided okay the only other two tones outside of that is a mid-brown and a chocolate brown. Now so far I've only gone mid-brown and that's been for you know, I'm just looking at my collection at the moment one two three there's been three at mid-tone now including Barack Obama. If there's anyone who's just beautifully absolutely African black one day oh my god I'm going to give them this beautiful chocolate brown amazingness and it's going to be beautiful but let me get back to the real point of the lego figure it is a most beautiful simple thing particularly when we talk about the first lego figure because what we've got now has been around since has been pretty much unchanged apart from what they print upon the pieces has is pretty much unchanged since 1978 that's when the first posable lego figure came out and there was a police officer doctor nurse fireman i seem to remember the first basic part of their and they're gorgeous little things simple and the dot dot semicircle for a face beautiful amazing universal and everything was just basics no patterns no nothing just solidness and it's what the child decides to reflect upon it and again that's what i'm doing with this too but before 1978 eight there was an earlier figure it was a precursor it's not referred to as a true first lego figure so they still like to refer to as the 1978 one as the first minifigure but before that there was even more beautifully abstract piece it was literally just a piece of blocks it was this the head was the same that was when the invention of the head came out the hats were and the hair they even had as well that fit the head but what was different is the torso and legs they were just these semi-triangular pieces in opposite directions to just represent legs going inwards at the bottom and hips at the top outwards at the top and then for the torso it was the same in the reverse 
with just little hints of arms on the side and little hints of feet at the bottom. It is literally an abstract art in that way because you can't argue it looks like a person, but it looks nothing like a person in reality. It's just, it, it looks, actually the right word is, it looks cyclatic, cyclatic. I should mention at this point, my dyslexia does actually affect my verbal words as much as it affects my written words. So English language, I've had to realise, is my second language. And when people would then say, what's your first language? Is that, eh, no. <laughs> I don't have one, I don't think. <laughs> anyway, but they, they are cycladic in appearance. These are so amazingly beautiful, so amazingly abstract. And I keep going back to those. I've got, a, I actually own a couple of original, actual original 1975 ones of these, just because I keep trying to remember that when I do these more complex, and as much as I am putting complex design similar to how Lego figures are done now, I don't like where Lego has gone sometimes where they put too much detail in, because if you put too much detail in, it restricts the potential imagination when you're looking at it. So it's why I talk about feel over literal correctness. And of course, it's impossible. Like, like imagine actually say, use use an example. Imagine if I actually did a print of your face upon a Lego head. It would look stupid. So it's not about getting you literally correct. It's, uh, I think I said it really early on um, in one of my pieces of um, writings about how I approach these figures. It's about thinking of you in a world made of Lego, not about making a Lego figure look like you. So you almost appreciate are... the challenge more that because it's it's not going to be able to be such a, a realistic portrayal of someone. Exactly. It's like it's like looking at yourself in a parallel universe made of Lego. Right. So I like that though. I like it. So it, it definitely sounds like it's your process when deciding to do this is almost as if because you don't want the literal me to it. It's almost yeah. like you're trying to gather up my personality, my essence in a bottle. Absolutely. Yeah. And then it's the internal, it in not the a external. little Lego figure. Exactly. It is about the internal, not the external. I mean, unless, however, there are some specific externals that need to be done. Like, for instance, and we've talked and we've talked about this as we're creating your figure as well. You are your Lego figure is the first time I've actually had to put in ethnically appropriate eyes to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you're not the first. Asian descent human being I've done in the family. In fact, I think you're the third, maybe the fourth, but I haven't needed to do such eyes for them just because it wasn't a part about their internalness. For you, it was something interconnected to your internalness, particularly because when you, because uh, you're very specific in saying I had to get the uh, smirk right. And it's particularly when you do the smirk, the, the eyes glistened that particular look. It's the Asian thing. It's the Asian thing that they they tell I notice or I tell people mm. it's mm. the Asian thing where when Asian people smile, yeah. it's like the eyes smile with you. Oh, absolutely. No, no. And it is beautiful. So if I was mm -hmm. to take that away, just because PCness tells me I can't, then that in itself is an evil because there's to be truly PC is a really hard thing. Because if you go too far, you're denying the truth. Or the beauty, or let's not call it even the truth. You're denying the internal beauty, potentially. Just like I've got certain, well, and we all got every single human being across the world. I, I even hate the term when we say ethnic, when we talk about a specific person. It's like, yeah, I'm ethnic too, by the way. It's like, I'm ethnically, well, you know, the combinations that I am, but let's just go with the basic one. I'm ethnically Anglo. So will we ignore that when we're trying to do a portrait of me? No, you won't. 
to some extent, or you to some extent, if it's abstract art or pop art, which is why I, I am following more the methodology of pop art as well, because that's a whole nother complex nuance and philosophical papers have been written about, particularly about um, a Warhol's Brillo box, which defines that was the day we actually understood art. So I was just at a family gathering quite recently, and I was talking about my figure excitedly, and I was showing pictures of it on my phone, as one does. And it's so funny because what you just said sparked this, it's way too recent to be a memory, I suppose. But either way, this comment, let's say. And my nephew took one look at the picture and just said, that is unmistakably 100% you. I could never, ever look at this figure and confuse it for anyone other than you because it's just, that is your personality right there. Excellent. <laughs> and I said, that's oh, why it well. takes six months to make these things. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, that's, that's, I'm pretty sure that's the goal. But since you also mentioned how much time it takes and, and the, the care that you put into doing this for people, now one must ask, in, ref- in reference to all the emails that you get all the time, mm. how do you choose people? How do people make the, the cut for the family if you're going to invest the, the time and the effort into sort of getting to know yeah, them? Yeah. The whole, the whole it, thing. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, it's an interesting question because one person said, is there a committee? <laughs> <laughs> ask me if there's, is there a Lego classes committee? Um, there actually, is, the answer is one. Well, I mean, actually, there is of two, actually, because um, Dooku uh, at the British Museum, who is my European ambassador, I do not choose, um, one of the rules we've made with each other is um, I do not choose a single person at the British Museum to join. They have to ask her first. She's completely and 100% in charge of whoever comes into the family from the British Museum. So uh, first one was asked by a friend. The second, and Dooku was the first one to just say, can you make me? Uh, Of course I can. (laughs) (laughs) And then she started suggesting lots of other people and I went sure why not <laughs> anyway so that's a sidetrack but no it is true it's, it's it's a committee of one and the answer is really hard to answer sometimes it's because I've been suggested like people do email me and suggest me and I'm happy for anyone to do that I um, go to my website my email's on there send me a message just ask politely please because I've had some really rude ones sometimes yeah they're not the stories for another day but um Ask me, I'll consider anyone who fits the call, like anyone, really. But more often than not, it's just down to, I'm just feeling it. They, uh, for you, for instance, it was just like, I was already following your work. Um, and when you contacted me for this idea, I was just saying, yeah, look, you're part of the next generation of conversation. Why not? Get in early. And other people, it's because they're direct friends. Other people, I know them half because of through work. And other people, I have no connection to them whatsoever. But I just know that they should. Like, I think more recently, Stephen Fry and Joanna Lumley, I just knew they had to because particularly, I mean, Stephen Fry is obvious because of all his books he's written. And also he's, again, another one who's really helped with my dyslexia because he's done amazing readings of his books and not just reading them, but you feel them as you're listening to them. So it gave me a really big dollop of information. And again, he seems to think in the same way. It's not about the data, it's about the feel. So they were, those were amazing histories as well. Because that's the other thing about Lego classicists. I call it Lego classicists, but I don't stop at what's referred to as the classics. That was my next question, which is, mm. you know, it's it's called Lego classicists, but 
you know, that can be so Which was a joke. Defined. It was just a simple joke because it was after the second figure that I just, oh, I'll call them Lego classicists. Yeah, and, and you've got some Egyptologists in there. So I'm kind of like, I, I because once once we announced my figure a while ago, I had a, a an Assyriologist friend of mine just say, oh, she commented on Facebook, I think, and just said, you know, yeah. this is the coolest thing ever. I'm so sad I'll never make the cut as I am only a lowly Assyriologist. Uh, uh, and I just said, uh-huh. what do you mean only a lowly Assyriologist? <laughs> I was like, it's amazing. It's so cool if I had time to you know get endless amounts of degrees i would get one in assyriology i said there's there's hope for you honey there's hope for you but my actual who comes in structure i basically set out three basic rules and i call them lego classicist honorary lego classicist and honorable mention lego classicist lego classes is just the straightforward you're in but that also but also you're in is also inclusive of non-classical studies basically anyone who studies anything that is considered an ancient world study of any culture whatsoever you are potentially in just without a doubt because as far as i'm concerned if you're studying something that's over 2000 years ago get damn straight you're in because all ancient culture is valid i mean i'm still really wanting to do something about uh, more uh, native aboriginal culture in australia at some point too i just haven't found the academic to represent that yet because again i don't want to do um, i don't want to be patronizing at all i don't want to just do it because it's vogue i want to I will never ever do anything just because it's Vogue. And in fact, a couple of people even one this was a ridiculous one I got told once, oh, where are all the women? I went, oh, hang on, I'll list them out now. Um, this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, this one. Sorry, what was your question again? We said, because I'm the son of I'm the son of a 70s feminist. I do take this seriously. And I do have a part to play myself. Like I said earlier on, I am a white male Anglo-Saxon, middle-aged man, Anglo-Saxon. I've got a duty to make sure I don't mess things up because most do apparently, but I do take this stuff seriously. And it's something that my mother says is you can't do it just playing to the game because then that is equally as bad as not doing anything at all. So it's a really big thing in the back of my head, whether it is about sexism, whether it's about cultural racism or any sort of thing whatsoever, I make sure every person who comes in is genuinely in, not just because I'll do that person because that covers that then. So I do want to do Aboriginal culture at some, Australian Aboriginal culture at some point too, but I have not found the academic to represent that genuinely yet, but that is on my list. So that's the first call. So yeah, that leads me into the second category, honorary Lego classicist, whereas not necessarily ancient history, but you're still an advocate for history as a whole. Uh, For instance, Greg Mackey in South Australia, he's actually the founder of many arts. um, He was actually Mr. Arts for many years in South Australia, a good friend of the family of mine, I'm happy to say. But um, more recently, he's in charge of history in South Australia. And I made him a Lego classicist as well. It was really great when I met up with him because he insisted when he took his photograph, he put it on his shoulder because I want to look like a pirate. (laughs) But that was so cute. It's anyone who's an advocate for understanding history to not just facts and figures, not just dry, old school, learn the data and get out. It's about the human connection. Like, look at Assassin's Creed Odyssey. It's dollops and wallops of feel over feel. The fact that, uh, is, again, uh, Lynette Jensen, when I showed her just some footage of a pre, before I even got the game, I just showed her um, one of those sneak peeks. She went, they got the light right. <laughs> they got the freaking light right. That was the bit she reacted to. She said, no, okay. And she's not, she's not anti-video games, but she's not into video games. But she, even she went, oh, look, I'm not an advocate for video games. But yeah, no, you, if you can convince me about a video game, it's done. I'm it. And we use, we use that in arguments later on and say, oh, I'm just not sure we want to have that video game in our museum. And said, <clears throat> they got the light right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll use that again and again, because if you get the light right, 
who cares about any of the other abstract artistic license you chuck in there? It's a video game. What do you expect? They have to go with the construct of a video game. I digress again. So then there's level three, honorable mention. I specifically put that one in there for shut up, that's why. Just anyone who I think is a supporter of the supporter, like for instance, especially, and I designed that category very early on, and I put a couple of people, like for instance, one of the people I put in that category very early on is the woman who is the main person who works at my local post office, and she works at the package pickup place. And because of the work that I do with these engravings, all the engravings we send and pick up are through the postal system, not through art careers or anything like that, because luckily, thank the gods that Australia's actually got an actual trustworthy postal system, we work through that. And as a result, she knows, and after time, she actually worked out that some of the parcels she's giving to me are over 100, 200, 300 years old. So she's actually, as a result, she actually makes sure she puts them to a special spot. And makes sure. So I made her a Lego classicist because she participates, even though her career isn't participating in the ancient history world, she is a part of the community and the community, everyone participates in the ancient history world. One, it's part of our culture. It's our ancient culture. But two, the person who makes the archivist a coffee every morning is participating. The person who ensures that your shopping is available and easy. And now we're in a world of COVID. I think we all understand how important these people are to our lives. How could we survive without the shop assistants at the supermarket keeping the place clean and at my local supermarket they are amazing because i'm constantly seeing them constantly cleaning all the time as well so i feel comfortable when i walk in it's like oh yeah they're spraying that shelf again great so i think only i was thinking like this before covid but i think more people understand how important these non-connected people are always connected to everything you do and if you're a classicist they're connected to you so therefore they are equally to, so for me, I put them in at a personal level because they're helping me. Therefore, that helps me do my work. And I do actually want, that is actually kind of a you know, controversial set I will plan to do either late this year or early next year. I do actually want to represent all these people I just talked about in the Lego classes family because without their support doing their job, I wouldn't be able to be an archivist right now. I wouldn't be able to be a Lego classicist right now. So I think they deserve to come in for that room. And I'm going to make them a universal idea. This can be just because these are my personal ones for me. We've all got these people in our lives. We've all got that. We've all got that barista who you, you don't even need to tell what coffee you're taking today. They've already got it started by the time you get to the front of the line. All those people who ask, how are you and your family going? Or double checking that they put that parcel away safely for you. Like we've all got these people and we wouldn't be able to do our work and we never think about them. But I think we are starting to think about them a lot more these days. So yeah, so there is a third category of just if I decide they're in, that's the end of it. Like there's one, actually, there is one specifically. I won't say the name of the person because I don't know if they're going to be a bit, um, released by the time this recording goes out or not. Because as you know, it takes forever to make these things. But there's one person in particular who um, is actually a host of a children's television show back when I was a young child. And the methodology of not just the show, but this specifically this host was all about serious play. That play is serious and to be serious is to be playful. And I realized that this is internally my not just my methodology, but Lego classicists methodology as well. And without this human being in my life watching through television as a small child, like I'm literally talking about before I can remember I was watching this person. So recently I did decide I need to make her a Lego classicist as well. And it probably will be seen as controversial because everyone says, what does that got to do with anything? And the answer is shut up. That's why. So yeah, I do reserve the right to say shut up. That's why as well. So, so I guess to, to answer your question, everyone's got hope to be in the family. 
<laughs> right. You know, I, I love this third category. Uh, I just wanted to say, I, I think mm. it's amazing. And I think it, it really does uh, honor the, you know, you can have your personal connections stand in for the larger group, yeah. which I think is wonderful. Yeah. But with a lot of the personal connections, you know, I can understand why it would be a lot easier to, you know, get in contact with them. And, and, you know, it's just, it's so flattering. What do you do about the, the, the more impossibles? Yeah. So, so, <laughs> the impossibles. you know, well, and what we consider impossible to different degrees, obviously. So there's like really impossible. And then there's yeah. slightly more attainable, but maybe just like the average person would be like, wow, that seems incredible. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of a few members who are in the family already. So mm-hmm. just for those who are not aware of who all comprises of the family, we have people who are as famous as we have Dame Mary Beard, the famous mm-hmm. classicist professor from Cambridge. And then we have some of the game developers for Assassin's Creed Odyssey who are on there who are not clearly in academia and you know ask your average person they don't know how to get a hold of game developers at major studios. That one was so, impossible. One that one's actually an interesting story, but continue. Uh, but just generally, you know, you have some famous professors. You have Natalie Haynes. She's an author, a broadcaster. You know, most people would be like, what? Was that easy? Was that hard? So for the, the people who are a little more on the famous side, the less personal side, is that easy? Like, how do you go about that? First answer is yes, no, maybe sometimes. <laughs> I guess this is also where my generational arts background or particularly commercial arts background is actually really useful for me because you're taught this kind of stuff growing up, how to contact people, who to contact and the etiquettes involved because everyone's a little bit famous. Even my grandmother was actually a semi-well-known watercolorist in Sydney too. So I've grown up with the concept of in your own reality, we all experience a small amount of fame from time to time, depending on what point in your life you are. So for instance, I'll just really quickly say, I'll say I still get bowled over the fact that people around the world know who I am. I still find that hilarious, particularly since it's not my career as well. But um, even as a young child, when I was still pursuing more graphic art, I won some design competitions. I know you've got a love for flags. So I know you love this one. I designed a flag for an actual uh, national television, kids television show. So as a result, I became a little bit famous at the time too, but only a little bit. And then in my filmmaking career, became a little bit famous too, but only a little bit. It's within your world. But it's through the fact that you experience this so early, you're comfortable with the understanding because you don't become complacent too, because people do, and they're called prima donnas. But the people who, more often than not, most people who experience fame for a longevity of time, whether they experience early or later, and I'm being lucky that I've experienced it through generationally as well, is you're taught how to behave. And it is just as simple as try to contact a person. What you have to do is find the appropriate contact. So uh, let's start with Natalie Haynes. She was very easy to contact. She's got a lovely website with a lovely email and just be lovely to her and she'll be lovely back. The end. I guess that's rule number one. Just be lovely. Just be nice. Like I said earlier on, I've had some rude people asking me, so, uh, why is this person not in yet? Okay. One, how do you know I haven't got them on the list? And two, do you mean I'd like to suggest that this person should come in yet? <laughs> I think he's what you mean. I have no problem having suggestions. Just, just, just don't be an idiot, basically, because we're talking about humans talking to humans. That is rule number one. We are all human. Regardless of what position of life you're in, you're a human. Approach them as such. But at the same time, if we are to, so Natalie Haynes was a lovely contact and a lovely human being, and it was lovely to contact her. If we talk about someone more politically involved, yes, there are etiquettes to understand. Be careful, be understanding, and just find their assistant (laughs) is rule number one, I guess, really, because they're the contact point. I will talk about that one a bit deeper in a second, but you did ask about people like um, uh, Professor Beard. 
anyone who's actually an actual academic is really easy because it's what I do love about the academic world is they are open about their communication because that's their duty because they are teachers first regardless of how famous they might be through side projects contacting people like Professor Beard, Wallace Hadrill, uh, Michael Scott they're lovely people really easy to find and you just talk to them as per what their first love is, which is ancient history, and just say, why are you contacting them? I guess that's the other thing. It's not just be lovely to these people. Just get straight to the point. Contacting you. I'm this person. Contacting you for this reason. What do you think? Keep things simple. So does that mean that you no longer have any imposter syndrome? Because I, I know when I'm even reaching out to people to ask them to come on my podcast. Oh, that's a, a, that's a uh, really yeah. complex question. Now we're talking yeah. about life as performance, which my brother is studying <laughs> forms of that as well. Because, of course, yes, no, of course, we are all putting on a face. We are all performing. I'm performing right now. You're performing right now to the specific job we're doing right now. It's my true self, but a specific true self. No, I actually think I don't really like to call it imposter syndrome because if you, once you get to the confidence of knowing what it is, it's not imposter syndrome. It's putting on the right performance to the right audience. Know thy audience. That's all it is. Yes, I will word things one way at the beginning of a conversation or like for, for instance, let's use us for a section. The first email you sent me is the most polite, <laughs> formal. rigid rigid formal beautiful beautifulness at the beginning and then we just and now look at our Facebook conversations I know it went right from my almost academic writing right so yeah be, but yeah. you have to do that at the beginning that's not to say that you shouldn't have done that at the beginning because that's the politeness it's testing the waters you don't want to start saying we don't want to do an Australian how are you going mate bloody hell are you <laughs> yes I can actually do an Australian accent <laughs> but you want to start off polite and depending on who, and of course, at that point, you had no idea what level I actually was or what level we would have next. So it's always safe to start with the most safe. And one respects that. Like I respected the fact you started that way and said, oh, good, we can start a conversation. Like I said, unlike those people who start rudely, I said, well, I'm just going to ignore that. <laughs> like if you're going to be course. rude about it, I'm not even going to answer that question. So I think really imposter syndrome only exists if it was a beautiful Ted talked about, not about faking it until you make it. It's faking it until you become it. Because then it's not faking anymore. You are it. And I think that's the moment that it's no longer imposter syndrome. Yes, you had to train yourself. Absolutely. And you have to kind of convince yourself and say, I don't want to do it. But you have to. And you do it so many times, it's not faking it anymore. So it's not fake it till you make it. It's fake it until you become it. And just make sure your training is turning you into something genuine, not fake. And I think that's important too. I dislike the way that people think that status is a bad thing. It can be a bad thing. It is used as a bad thing. Absolutely. But status is just that beautiful little wibbly wobbly timey wiminess, as David Tennant mm -hmm. once said. <laughs> It's when done right, it's a beautiful thing because it's, it's just human connection and human connection is always beautiful. It's if you abuse it, it's horrible. And unfortunately, politicians shall names nameless <laughs> abuse that and make us all think, therefore, that all forms of that type of etiquette is evil. But etiquette is not evil. Etiquette is polite. Look at Stephen Fry, the most gorgeously conservative yet flamboyant man in history. He's one of my greatest um, ins inspirations because he's so beautifully prim and proper and yet open and loveliness mm. all at the same time. He plays with every aspect of it. But you did mention Ubisoft because that is actually a good story because I couldn't find it. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to, I pre-made them in time for the release of Odyssey. 
and I was trying to get in contact with him, but I just couldn't find an appropriate email. But so I understood that. But I, in the end, because this was one of released a figure without contacting the person, because I just like, screw it, let's just, they deserve it. This is amazing. This is powerful. I've already seen the videos. I haven't played the game yet, but I can tell regardless of whether it's good or bad thing, the gods, it turned into an amazing game, but it didn't matter. That was beside the point. It was already powerful. The fact that a video game developer has made an open world of the classical ancient Greek world. Amazing. I don't care if it's the worst game in history. I'm just going to walk around and look at the buildings. <laughs> that was my concept. And I did decide to just stick to the directorial staff. So that's why I chose the four that I chose because a video game takes more people than a film. I will, if I started opening up that bandwagon to everyone, it'd be over, what, 300, 500 people, something like that. More. Have to do. So yeah, it's why I stuck to the directors and the producers because I just thought, okay, they're the representation to the whole. And particularly Mel as well, because I want, because I am more about the writing side and the artistic license side of things. And it's why I wanted the narrative director in as well, because I could have just stuck to the directors and producers, but I thought, no, we need the narrative director in there because that's where the nuance comes in. And that's something mm -hmm. I want to know. I just wish I could have got her hair right her hair just doesn't exist <laughs> because she's got a pixie bob and i know what a pixie bob looks like i had a girlfriend once i had a pixie bob i knew what nuance that needed and that doesn't exist in lego so i just had to stick to a classic bob instead i added the highlights myself though anyway but um so yeah i released it and i just left it go out there and i was going semi-viral and i could see that ubisoft did actually like it and shared it as well and that was amazing and i just decided i'm just going to play like i'll get onto it it was october i had some others to release it was getting closer to christmas i'll get onto this later it'll be fine i think the main thing is they see it they like they seem to like it they're sharing it that's good they can see that i'm not being some sort of obsessive fanboy i'm trying to be genuine december i think i just get this twitter message okay i made sure to follow them on the social media so if they follow because i know that's how twitter works if you only when you're both following each other you can message each other which is actually a good method actually mm -hmm. but this, i remember waiting Waking up and having my morning coffee, I'm just like, oh, I've got a message from Ubisoft. Hi, we're wondering if we could purchase these figures somehow. <laughs> Here's our email. Okay, okay now we, well, we've got a conversation started. So yeah, no, they contacted me in the end. And this has happened once or twice before, particularly when it is this level. When I know that there's just a level of distance that they put in there for a reason, because there the does need to be distance. Like Stephen Fry's got huge distance i've got in contact with his staff now and they're looking after the figure very carefully at the moment until he gets back from la so he will have his figures very soon but this distance is needed with people of a certain for any reason whether it's their high status or whether it's just that a certain audience is just going to take up too much not cruelly just too much of their time so that was ubisoft they would just be bombarded with too much so sometimes i just it's like to put it out there for the gods to do rest i guess is the best way of putting it because as i just go with as long as I do it genuinely, it should be seen as being genuine. So yeah, so I, I, I like the Ubisoft story just because, and what's even better is it then led into probably one of my best friendships in history because very soon after that, I got introduced to um, Dr. Ruata and we've just become the best of friends online. <laughs> and we, we worked on so many different projects since. So it's just amazing that I love the way that that's the other side. I think I really do want to talk about that now is I love the way that it started as a joke. It's just a bit of fun. And it was mostly for friends I already knew. It's now turned into, before a world of COVID and before the world of Lego classicists, I would, I'm now calling people friends that I would have never 
had this communication with before. And I think that in itself is a beautiful thing. And it's more evidence for me where every time I do worry myself, because of course I do worry sometimes. Am I just being egotistical? Am I just doing this to just become more famous? Blah, freaking blah. Because we all good humans do this from time to time. But it's when these connections happen and go, oh, screw that. <laughs> that has nothing, that couldn't, that couldn't physically happen if that was true. Right. Well, and just for clarification for the audience, Dr. Stephanie Ann Ruata was the historian for Ubisoft that they consulted for making Assassin's Creed Odyssey, the ancient Greece game. And indeed just... Immortals as well, which I'm still ah, yes. my way through. And, and their new game, Immortals. Um, yeah. Yes, yes. So so now that you've established connections or you know, you've made people and they've contacted you or it, somehow it's all worked out, the last question I'll ask on this very interesting topic... So how big now is the family, approximately? Ooh, uh, hang, on, hang on, let's have a look. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, hundred That's right, because you're, you're one, one, one. <laughs> ah, that's right, that's right. Uh, so <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, no, you're 111. <laughs> when my figure was announced and I learned I was going to be figure 111, being the colossal nerd I am, I said I could not have found a more perfect number for my figure because that is the age Bilbo Baggins turns in the first Lord of the Rings movie at his birthday party. It is his 111th birthday mm-hmm. party. So I saw the, the connection there and I said, all right, I'm never going to forget what number I am. <laughs> yes, I, I just revealed myself to be an incredible nerd, which is fine. I love being a nerd. But That's anyway, all right. we've all got our thing. <laughs> <laughs> but so or I, I suppose this is a part two to this last yeah, question yeah. is, do you plan to continue doing this for basically it's until you get tired? Look, uh, where it now sits, like uh, I think probably about two years ago, I was always thinking, oh, one day this will just burn out, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think it's actually only grown since COVID as well. I think it's, I, and I like that because I, I like the way that it's been given, and it's a combination of joy and reassurance to people, I think. At least it's what I've been getting from messages from people and just even, not even just messages, just there's a nuance to the engagement I'm getting on social media now. It's a different engagement than I saw before. And I can't explain that. It's more my dyslexic brain talking now, but mm-hmm. I can sense a different behavior in the uh, in the interaction as well i guess the answer is i'll pretty much keep going as long as i can afford these expensive little bastards because <laughs> <Excuse laughs> as you know you know how much answer. they actually cost <laughs> <laughs> well yes and that is the best answer you could have given me so i want to leave my audience with that because that is the funniest best thing you could have given me and now be- anyway. uh, i know <laughs> <laughs> anyway so at the end portion i usually have the guests read the poem and then just sort of give me their quick thoughts on the meaning and the messages and how it makes mm-hmm. them feel but just to sort of explain this to my audience as we've said you are very dyslexic so we're going to do something a little different on this episode and I'm going to recite the poem for Liam so we don't tax his eyes and his brain. And then he can just react to the poem after I've um, recited it. So this is like the, you know, this will be the, the only episode, I hope, in the whole podcast where uh, they will have to hear me. If we've got enough me. time, I'll talk a little bit more about my specific how dyslexia affects me as well, just to give the audience a bit of understanding why it's a little bit more complex than that as well. But it's also interconnected to my understanding of the poem, which I've got to understand, and indeed how it interacts with the entire conversation so far. 
Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, please do. So without further ado, I have worked with this poem I, for a very long time to the point where I've basically memorized it. Here, I will prepare to impress everyone with my... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I recited knowledge of the poem. This is Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. There's a billion and one things can say about each and every word in that. And uh, I mean, where to start? I think I'll start where it's directly related to Lego classicists, for instance. We're talking about the craftsperson who had put that stern look into the stern face to get the stern meaning. And we'll talk about what does that mean about the king of kings? And it probably means very little because that's a part he's playing as well. Um, because we could say, is it just a dictator doing dictatorial things or is him playing a part? Because if, unless he plays that part, will he get attacked by their neighbor kingdom? Because there is a lot to be said about the duties of a person in power because there's their real self and their business self. And we hope there is a difference. Otherwise, again, we can mention the other politician we didn't mention before because that's another thing. But the, stern, the craftsman who puts the face in reminded me so much exactly what I'm attempting to do with Lego classicists because, again, and more often than not, yours is an unusual uh, face because I did design it myself, whereas mostly I do use the plethora of choices. That, that There's just like more choices than you could possibly imagine. Every time they release a new set, I always go in through the face and go, yep, that one, that one, that one, no, not that one, <laughs> and I put it into my toolkit. But that is indeed, even though I'm not sculpting it myself with my own hand, I'm sculpting it within my mind's eye of going, okay, is that one the right balance with that torso, with that hairpiece? Because again, and the hairpiece is actually, I find it actually more fascinating as well because it's the hairpiece that's more important sometimes. We talked about that personally when I was choosing the hair for your Lego figure is when the hair is right and particularly the color, that is what changes it all of a sudden. Like I could effectively just have the classic dot, dot, semicircle. And if I put the right hair and torso on, it will still look like the person if I get it right. But so that so reminds me of exactly what the poem is talking about in that sense is how, why are we so invoked by that? Well, it's because of the original artisan from whatever time period that was, thousands of years, still is invoking that today. And that in itself is a really powerful thing. The meaning of what that statement is, the king of kings, yes, it's, trying to scare the freaking bejesus out of you and does that mean he's a egotistical person maybe 
or maybe not. Maybe he's playing a job. Actually, I just said before, it's so hard to read those kind of job description texts. Like, that's how I like to think of it when you read those things. Is, oh, he must be really, maybe, or he was a really lovely guy and he actually had fun with his children that night in, in their private quarters. We don't know that. Or, uh, and as we know with modern history, yes, and a lot of them are stupid idiots who do really think they are God's gift to humanity. But we like to ignore those because they're idiots. So that's a hard one to deconstruct. And it was why I often don't like to talk about that side of things because one doesn't know. But in the context of the poem specifically, another aspect it reminds me of is, and I mentioned earlier on when I was a young filmmaker, and it reminds it doesn't matter who you are and what you are, everything is meaningless because one day you'll be forgotten. And that is the truth. That is, and that's, it depresses some people, but I find that beautiful because the truth is we all share the same history. One day I will be forgotten. That is the truth. There's no way around that. So that makes life itself, your life right here, right now, how I interact with other human beings and how I'm seen to other human beings, more beautiful, more important, more amazing as well. But it particularly reminds me a little bit of being a young filmmaker too, the way that I was ridiculed and judged for the fact that I refused to make deep and what I referred to earlier on as deep and meaningless films, being artistic art house pieces that were talking about something depressing. Because all teenagers and young adults at the time thought, oh, that's a serious film if it's depressing. Whereas I just did comedies. And I also got really good sponsorship at the time too. And they thought that meant, meant I was selling out. And I was like, well, no, I'm still experimenting. I'm still learning. How do I make something meaningful unless I know how to first write a film, direct a film, make it worthy to watch. And a comedy is a good way of doing it because at least I'm having fun while I'm doing it. But one of the most important things I learned through that time period was actually the projectionist uh, Desmond Rutherford at the Art House Cinema who ran the courses there as well, who one day saw one of my films, thought they were amazing, and we became really good friends. And he actually became one of my mentors early on. And it was when one day he told me, one thing, it was when he saw an early edit of one of my films and his criticism was really the best criticism. First, that was amazing. I'm not going to tell you what's wrong because you will know that soon. I am going to tell you what you got right because you need to be encouraged there. And I thought that's why don't more people actually think like that? But this is more important. This is what directs, directly relates to more is know how to make a person laugh before you know how to make them cry because there are far too many people who attempt drama and they make an accidental comedy because we've all seen ham it. When you ham it so much, it's meant to be serious, but you can't help but burst out laughing. That's someone who never learned how to do comedy first. You know, I know that sounds like a sidetrack, but it reminds me so much of that because when you become so serious over serious over serious, which is exactly what that statue was trying to do because it's playing a role. And obviously one could actually conjure up in one's mind's eye that that was a statue at the entrance to the actual city that is now literally sand because so much time has passed that it has no meaning anymore. It can look, anything can look hammed when it's taken outside of context. And that's what that statue looks like. It's saying something serious for nothing. So it's, and again, another reason why it's kind of hard to work out. What does that mean? But that is why you're right. It is a beautiful, complex poem because in its simplicity, you can never stop working out another way of looking at it. But also the way that I'm thinking about this right now, I'd like to use that, if that, I may use that as a segue to talk a little bit, because I've mentioned my dyslexia, but I haven't really talked about my dyslexia very much. If I may use that as an example, um, as a point at this point, because I do want to make it more known in my life now how severely dyslexic I actually am, particularly because I want to become a little bit of a spokesperson, because not many people just think it's, I can't read or write, or anyone who calls themselves dyslexic, they just need to work harder on their reading and writing. It's like English language or whatever language you speak is your second language. It's the actual 
understanding of the language is different, you can't quite grasp it. It's like trying to grasp the um, air sometimes. But I have actually been officially properly diagnosed. And this is because I used to think, and my family used to think, well, I was just medium level dyslexic because I'm good. We've had plenty of conversations. You can see I can keep up with the conversation in text messaging. I'm okay. I can keep up. I've definitely got my unusual spelling errors, but that's about it. But it was when I got diagnosed when I was studying philosophy at the University of Sydney, I had to get tested properly to get some sort of help if I needed it. And it was through this process, I got officially diagnosed with not a little bit dyslexic, not medium dyslexic. I've only got 10% literacy ability. And at that level, you kind of think, how can I even freaking talk? But the other side of things to explain and they had to work out why I'm so able to keep up if I'm that low, because that usually that means you can't really keep up with anything. And they had to test my intelligence as well. And this is what's fascinating. I only tell this part of the story when it's to explain both sides. And this is what's fascinating is I was not only tested to be high level intelligent, but it's I'm in the top 10%. And I just find it fascinating. It's 10 and 10, bottom 10, top 10. And as a result, it evens out like a, like a scale and no wonder I come out as neutral. So I always say that, uh, so since then I always say, oh, damn this dyslexia, I would be an evil genius by now. <laughs> it's the only thing stopping me from taking over the world is my damn dyslexia. But I say that jokingly because, because it is fascinating, it is amazing, but it's also really important that I was doing this while I was studying philosophy as well, because that's what I was studying at um, the University of Sydney. And I had to bring up my reading and writing ability for that to be able to write papers and so, so such. So I was probably at this point, I was at my highest level of literacy ability, but I could see within myself that my abstract thought was becoming more rigid and I couldn't think the way that I was used to thinking, which is ironic because I needed that fluidity to understand philosophy. So it was through that process, I also then, even though I did discover that I have got the ability to improve my writing and reading, I decided I'm never going to do that ever again. So I've actually gone back to, um, in fact, I allow myself to sometimes get borderline um, illiterate sometimes because the words, the human language, not human language, particularly the Anglo human language and writing specifically does hinder my thoughts because it is so rigid in reality. And of course, we're talking about modern reading and writing. We're talking about a post-industrial um, revolution. Because before that, reading and writing was a lot more fluid, even for the intellectuals back then. There's plenty of letters that are written where they spell their name three different ways. So it's, it's a post-industrial revolution writing that's particularly rigid. Anyway, I just hope that the, I do want that known to the, um, not just the, your specific audience, but in general, I want this kind of known. Because I think not many dyslexic people are able to actually verbalize the, it is actually a completely different way of thinking. It's not just, I can't read and write. It's that my brain wasn't designed to read and write because it thinks in a new, a different direction. If that which is sense. very important because it helps you with your art and your creativity, which is great. Oh yeah, and yes, you know, I, I suppose that's the world's way of self-correcting. So, no uh, evil world emperor for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but specifically, that is why it's beautiful to have um, you read it today, and also that's why I do really appreciate the works of people like Stephen Fry and Natalie Haynes as well, who go to the effort of actually not just getting them read to cassette or I'm sorry to. What is it? What are we using now? The online things, Spotify, whatnot. <laughs> I, I get the CDs. I like my physical formats. But 
not just having it read by anyone by themselves, but also not to just read it word for word to actually put the nuance, because if you are reading, there's a nuance that needs to be put in as well. And Stephen Fry did that beautifully. And, um, mm. and I think more people, more academics should probably consider that as not just being some sort of frivolous extra way of making money, that there's an entire audience out there who actually, I need it other people need it because we get to hear that nuance that we like I can switch my reading brain on if I have to and I will if I have to but I can't read fluently so I will miss the subtlety as I'm reading because I'm concentrating on trying to de uh, deconstruct the words as well so to have someone read it beautifully is an important thing well you know lucky in that I am not dyslexic not mm. one tiny bit now you know the world self-corrects it's it's in its own way so mm. I am uh you know dyscalculic so I can't mm. do numbers mm. at all so that's why I haven't taken over the world because I can't do math for shit or stats <laughs> or anything <laughs> oops but yes I with my non-dyslexic brain I discovered the audiobook version of Natalie Haynes book a thousand ships and i mm. much prefer to listen to her read her book oh she reads beautifully because she reads beautifully and i can tell i can hear through the recording the the parts that are so emotional that she is crying yes. oh yeah you can't yes, get yes. that when you read the thing yeah, no. and so she in talking to her i remember she said that she was quite shocked when people would perform her books I remember she pointed a specific example they were reading ships at the british museum and um was um basically shouting her part and right. natalie remembered thinking oh well i never imagined her shouting this is where she's a bit more be... softer and more nuanced than that this is where yeah. she would be crying you know so yeah, yeah, it's yeah. yes it's definitely a nuanced question and mm, mm. yeah so i appreciate when when people take the time to to read their mm. work or um their interpretation of something very yeah much. absolutely mm -hmm. absolutely but I could talk to you more and more and more. And I know. <laughs> this is, you know, oh my goodness. So everyone. I have to do a sequel. We do have to have a sequel. We do. We absolutely do. But the, so the last question I ask though is um, the way I interpret this poem is it's a political statement by Shelley, not only mm. of the time that it's written, but just on the entirely ephemeral nature of political power. Ramses was a king. He was the top, the, you know, the king of kings. He had mm. this great civilization that at the time had lasted, you know, basically, uh, you know, 2,500 years, not quite 3,000. And he thought it would last that many more years. And now it's gone. It's quite literally gone dust sand. And yeah. so if we look at it about, you know, this, this idea of this lasting power that will be here, and that is no longer here. If we think about the world today, is there a modern equivalent to Ozymandias? What is our Ozymandias, you know? And this can be a very theoretical answer. This could be a person. Um, but the, the general gist is like, if we think about what do we think is great and amazing and wonderful, it'll last forever now. I'm being generous if I say another thousand years, because let's be real, climate change could kill us in like another hundred. So. Yeah, yeah. Let's just say an undisclosed period of time yeah, yeah. in the future. Philosophically you know, will, speaking. Will it have survived or will we just be like that was the stupidest thing as humans we could have possibly come up with? It's really complex because we're really talking about which one is more powerful than the other in any culture. And that's a hard thing to say because us Anglo-Saxons like to think our culture is the more powerful. But when I was studying Captain Cook, because we're talking about the time of King George III which was right in the grand smack in the middle of the Enlightenment. And King George III, as much as he's um, 
unfortunately, sadly, has been described as Mad King George III. The real truth of him, he was an amazingly creative man and a huge supporter of the arts and sciences. And he actively decided that's where England had to put its power, um, energy into, because he saw the future was in science and art, not in just I mean, of course, still taking over other countries, but that's what every country did. That's what every country still does. That's just universal. What I didn't realize was this is only like in the what, 1700s, 1800s, we're talking, not that, a second ago, two seconds ago. But this was the period that England became true power, only at that moment. Because before then, the world was split between the three main powers. Of course, there was a fourth as well, but the three main powers being England, Spain, and France. And they were in an act of agreed peace as long as no one discovered any new countries <laughs> and then they sent captain cook out to find um, the great southern continent they did that in a technicality of it's a scientific exploration by the way this is actually the inspiration for star trek captain cook is actually the original origins of star trek as well that's why he's called captain james t kirk and it's the uss enterprise not the uh, not the endeavor anyway it was only when I was reading that history, and also Cook's got a much deeper history we'll save for our sequel because it is fascinating because he's seen as colonialism, but really he was actually a working class boy just trying to get up and did things that were impossible to do. It was when that realisation, I realised even the, we, we kind of, now that England became the power and Anglo England became the power, and again, it's Australia and America, we all are part of that whole big Anglo thing. We always talk as though we've been around for hundreds of years even up to a thousand years, we kind of talk as though when the Romans disappeared, England became in power, the end. No, <laughs> it's actually only two, barely 200 years ago, it happened. Because before that, we were in competition with two other 300 or 400 cultures, also all thinking they were the next in line to the throne of Rome, because they were all in, influenced by Rome as well. So that's fascinating. So that's when I realized, to go back to your question, how do we tell, are we going to be around forever? Well, we've barely been around for two seconds. Every culture, everyone's got their no fear factor. And that's when it happened to England. Basically, as soon as Australia happened and France and Spain kind of backed down, that's when they suddenly had the no fear factor. That's when they started behaving as though they were kings of the world. Rome had a similar one too. I forget when I watched a documentary about Mary Beard because she didn't use the same term, but she used a very similar term that when Rome actually became in power power, it was only a couple of hundred years, it was only about 200 years before they also collapsed. So there's always about this 200 year period just before they collapse, they actually got the power power. Before that, it's building to that power. But of course, once you become in power, you look back at the past as it was um, God given inevitable from the beginning. So you look at it as those, oh, we've been in power for a thousand years. No, it was actually like two seconds, but you know, whatevs. Um, I'm using this as a long way, of, uh, way to the second part of the question. Therefore, what do we see as the future? And the answer is really yes, no, maybe, and a little bit of everything else and shut up, that's why. Because <laughs> which, culture, which culture are we talking about? Which point in their no fear factor, whether have they reached their no fear factor or not? are they in it about to hit it or just past it and also where do we actually define the culture actually died or did it actually shift to somewhere else and we call it a different country now again let's use rome as an example the fact that rome actually the turks considered themselves romans so they just shift they just considered they shifted over and then also the vatican is technically the modern version of rome as well it just shifted into a tiny little space instead <laughs> So where do we define it actually becoming a thing? It's a bit like an exhibition that was made by him recently where it was called the extinction myth because his current theory, and it's becoming more and more accepted, that dinosaurs never became extinct. They evolved. 
birds, all the birds around us, they're all dinosaurs. There's no such thing as one catastrophic, you know what I mean, disaster that happened. That was dyslexic right there. Um, there was no major disaster that killed them all off like a flood or a meteorite or blah, blah, blah. They just slowly evolved and they're not around anymore. Just like we're not Neanderthals anymore. Mm. And we'll be, and just like modern humans, we won't be modern humans one day. In another 10,000 years, we will be something else again. Um, so we're uh, so going to dust in the sand that king of kings, that culture that he was in charge of, might actually, even in that time period of that poem, might still exist. It's just next door and we don't call it that anymore. Because mm. if you actually were able to look at the history of how that one evolved, it might have been, oh, we just moved over here because the desert started drying us out or whatever reason. Ah. Okay, so that's a very theoretical, wow. <laughs> See, it's so funny. I got so used to so many people saying things like, capitalism or democracy that I'm like, oh, that's so theoretical. Now I'm like, no, 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 no. Your answer just put them to shame. That's theoretical. No, it's, like, it's a very complex question. And it's not even worthy to talk about po straightforward politics of right now, because politics always exists. It will always mm. exist. I even hate the way that people say one form of politics is superior to the other. All mm. politics is neutral. It's just a form of government. That's all. Mm. It's the politician themselves or the person in power that's important. You can have a monarchy and it will be the best, like look at Denmark, best monarchy ever. <laughs> Gorgeous, amazing work that they do. And I think this will be relevant because it is important about a definition of it. it doesn't, the politics itself doesn't matter. The, 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 the government itself doesn't matter. It's the person within the government. And it was a Danish film that just got film, uh, screened and there was a Q&A with the director. And this was just recently in Australian history where the Australian who married the, <laughs> is now the uh, princess of Denmark. And someone in the audience, because us Australians, we like to make fun of royal families. It's what we do, apparently. And they just made a kind of derogatory joke, kind of sort of, oh, yeah, what do you think about an Australian being a princess? Ho, 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 kind of thing. And this is where it became beautiful. The director, she just takes a big, deep breath, like she's heard this a thousand times before. And she just says, I know you Anglo-Saxons like to diss your royal family. We don't. We pay high tax, but we don't need to pay for hospitals or medication or arts. I am an artist and I don't have to have a job. This is my job because it's, they've actually got an entire system that looks after artists to just do their art. So we don't pay out our royal family because they look after us. And I went, damn, no, I wouldn't either. If I had that royal, I would be pro a royal family if that's the kind of royal family you have. It's like, so again, it's, it's the person themselves the politician themselves not the mm. not the government itself you can like even the term dictator wasn't a dirty word until world war ii yeah no i think that's fantastic and i think yeah. that you know it's it's all fascinating is what it it's is it's all fascinating so yeah it's i think it's fascinating the, i think the greatest question is at what point do we say that it died yeah well, I will leave uh, that question stewing in my audience's <laughs> minds uh, because I I think it's going to be more entertaining with what people can think about it instead of us trying to answer it. So again, you know, I could talk to you for 30 more years, but um, yeah. <laughs> it would be young Ditto. any longer. But we we must have you on again because there's so you are so multifaceted. There's, there's so much that we didn't get to cover. But, you know, if I want this recording to be any semblance of reasonable, unfortunately, <laughs> Unfortunately, we have to cut it off <laughs> somewhere. Yes, of course. But I look forward to speaking again, collaborating on projects. Hopefully we can do something. And yes, Absolutely. having you on for a part two. Absolutely. Love to. And it's been a joy.
Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings.